Hi, and welcome to the second session of the Silmarillion Seminar. First, I would like to note that we've gotten a little behind in posting these recordings. This is session two, and I post this on January 21st, 2011, and by this time we have held and recorded five sessions already. I will get the rest of the backlog of sessions posted as soon as possible, but I just wanted to let you know that the seminar has actually been happening and the recordings will be coming along directly. We are also mere days away from the launch of my new recorded Washington College English class, Fairy and Fantasy. Starting next week, your podcast feeds will be inundated with three episodes from the class every week, in addition to the weekly Silmarillion seminar and other episodes, so get your MP3 players cleaned up and ready to go. If you're planning to listen along with the course, I strongly recommend that you check out the webpage that I made for the class. You can find it through a link on my homepage at www.tolkienprofessor.com. The page contains a lot of valuable information about the upcoming class. It not only has the full detailed reading schedule of the class, so that you can keep up with the reading as we go, but it also has links to all the books that we'll be using. This is especially useful since many of the texts in this class are online texts which you can get for free. Now, if you check out these links, you will not be able to help but notice that the first four things we'll be reading in the class are in Middle English. I urge you neither to run screaming from the class nor to dash off to look for a modern English translation. We are going to be reading these poems in the original, and you can too, with only a little effort on your part, which will, I hope, be amply paid off in fun. For your assistance in this noble and yet wildly entertaining endeavor, I will be posting a few extra audio files to help out. One is a basic introduction to reading Middle English, which I'll be posting as a podcast episode in the next few days. In addition, I am also making unabridged audio recordings in Middle English of the first four poems that we're reading in the class, so that you can hear what the poems are supposed to sound like. I hope you guys are excited for this, because I sure am. One last note about the fairy course. For those of you who have listened to my previous recorded class, my Tolkien survey course that I recorded in the spring of 2010, I have good news. I should be able to make a significant upgrade to the sound quality of my class recordings, especially the recordings of the student comments. In the last few days, I have purchased a nice new digital recorder, and it should allow me to make a recording of the class that will be a huge improvement on the admittedly rather primitive recordings that I made last year. I've been able to purchase this nifty new unit thanks to the generosity of my listeners who have made donations through the donate button on my website's homepage, so I'd like to take this moment to thank everyone who has made a donation. All donations go directly into support of the podcast, and they've really meant a lot to me. Thank you very much. On that note of gratitude, let's turn to the Silmarillion Seminar's discussion of that very name-intensive and therefore comparatively unpopular section of the Silmarillion, the Valaquinta. Let's get going. So today we are talking about the Valaquinta, and uh, I, I have the general sense that this is the place where people who are going to be intimidated by names in the Silmarillion start to get intimidated by names in the Silmarillion. Uh, so I think that uh, I want to sort of start off kind of sorting out anything that we need to sort out. As I said last time, um, sort of simple things first to make sure that we're kind of clear on facts before we start talking about uh, bigger general themes. Um, Anyone have any uh, sort of more basic questions, things that you're kind of confused on? Are there characters that you get confused or whose relationships uh, uh, you find that, like you're kind of muddled on? Or, you know, any, any sort of uh, simple things we can kind of clarify from the get-go? Any, any, anyone have any questions like that? Okay. Yeah, Laura, go ahead. <laughs> 
Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, the Valaquenta is where I always kind of get stuck in the Silmarillion because it starts seeming like just a long list of names and, you know, all these different things about them. Are, uh, who should we be remembering for later? Who should we really be concentrating on when we, when we read this uh, section here? Yeah, I, that's a great question. I mean, the, the, the biggest problem, and I think, and I think it's one of the things that people get really hung up on with the Silmarillion is when you get to a section like this, where there are not only so many characters being presented, um, but, you know, multiple names for several of the characters and, and so many minor characters being thrown in, um, it, it can kind of feel like cramming for an exam. You know, you sort of read this and you're like, I'm never going to remember all this. I'm never going to remember all this. And then people just kind of get, um, uh, you just kind of kind of get lost. Um, so I, I would say the, the the one clearest cue that Tolkien gives us um, in the Valar section of the Valaquinta is when he talks about you know the the high ones, the Aratar, and the and 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 sort of the the lesser Valar. So you know he lists the original nine because Melkor was one of them, and then he's voted off the island, or rather votes himself off the island. So uh, so there are eight left, and those eight. Um, are definitely the ones that are going to be most important uh, throughout the rest of the um, th throughout the rest of the Silmarillion. So certainly uh, the ones that that get listed there. And let's see in uh, in our edition that list of the of the great ones is where did it go? Yeah, uh, the bottom of page twenty nine. Manwe and Varda, Olmo, Yavanna and Aule, Mandos, Niena. And Orame. If you can get, if you can keep those eight straight, then you'll be fine for almost all of, uh, almost all of of the rest of the Silmarillion. Tulkas is probably the only one of the Valar who's not on that list, and yet gets referred to a lot. Several of the other Valar who get uh, described here, uh, such for instance as uh, Mandos's uh, wife, Vaire, uh, the Weaver. She will never get mentioned again in the entire Silmarillion. Um, so it, there are some of them which are which are sort of minor and they're interesting and 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 it's you know it's really fun to think about. Um, but certainly, if you're just starting off, you don't have to memorize all that stuff. Um, so that's that that's a really sort of great great place to start. Okay, Dave, with excellent utilization of the new icon. I think of a particular importance is Varda, and, and Tolkien calls attention to this, that she's most beloved of the elves, and she's the one um, that they call out to um, when they're sort of in the shadows and the dark in times of trouble. And, of course, that happens time and time again throughout Lord of the Rings. Um, and uh, so I think that's certainly, uh, at least that jumped out at me, and for anyone who's reading this who's read Lord of the Rings previously, I, I would say that you should notice that, that and of course, she's also Elbrick. Um, You know that she's the one that they call out to, and I wonder if that has something to do with the fact that um, he said Tolkien also says at some point that whenever she's with Manwe, um, she can hear you know basically everything that's going on throughout Arda. Yeah, yeah. There's something kind of delightfully pragmatic about the fact, on one level, you know that that the elves always cry out to the one who can hear everything, <laughs> right? But of course, obviously, it's also not uh, not not just that simple. But yeah, I agree with you. One of the things that's really um, uh, of, of all of the people of, of all of the names that we get in this whole thing, um, you know, in this whole section, Varda should jump out because it's 
the pretty much the only name um, other than Sauron, of course, um, uh, and the Balrogs, which is familiar to us from Lord of the Rings. Um, and it's it's sort of the one moment. It, it, it's it, the one thing I remember from reading the Valaquenta the first time when I got to that place where it says, you know, and, and the elves uh, in Middle Earth call her Elbereth. You know, the one time, the one character in this where I was like, oh, okay, now now you know, it's sort of it was. I think it was my first experience of. I have read something in the Silmarillion that makes things that I've read in the Lord of the Rings make more sense. Um, so that was, uh, that's that, that I agree. Uh, uh, Dave is a really important thing. And I want to come back to, to Varda. I think uh, to try to be a little bit systematic, perhaps not quite so systematic as Tolkien is in this section, but, uh, but to be somewhat systematic, I want to talk about some, some of the kind of the basic general issues about them all first. And then I want to, I'd like to kind of go through and especially talk about the major ones, uh, and see what your thoughts are and things that you notice about them. Let me get to a couple of the questions that you guys have noted down already. Um, Matt asks an excellent question. What exactly uh, does it mean to be a brother or sister among the Ainur? Um, and uh, I, I think that that's, I'd actually kind of broaden that a little bit um, to sort of look at the, um, basically the nature of relationships, period. We see two different kinds of relationships, um, apart from friendships. I mean, there seem to be some of the Valar who are just sort of companions, but um, but we get husbands and wives and we get brothers and sisters. Um, we do not, interestingly, get parents and children. Um, and th- I, I point that out because actually that was in Tolkien's original conception. Um, uh, once again, referring back to the Book of Lost Tales, the, the first version of these stories that Tolkien wrote. In the Book of Lost Tales, uh, he actually had the Valar have children. Um, so Ilmarin and uh, Aonwe, the, the, the two lesser, the two, you know, two of the greatest of the Maiar, who, it, who the one of whom is the handmaid of Varda and the other of, the, of whom is the herald of Manwe, uh, originally those were their children, actually. Um, now he abandoned the idea, uh, the concept of the Valar giving birth to children, because um, he wasn't. He, he ended up not being comfortable with that, um, but he did keep. You know, so have, having pitched that, he still kept spousal relationships. He still kept husband and wife and um, siblings. Um, what do you guys make of that? What? What? Uh, I, I think we should we should be remembering, of course what we were told uh, in the end of the Aino Lindale about the nature of the Valar and the nature of their bodies and sort of the forms that they put on. Um, but, uh, but I think, you know, given all that stuff, what do we make of this, uh, the way that their relationships are depicted? Chris, go ahead. I was thinking back to the Aino Lindale when they talked about uh, Melkor and Manwe and their relationship being, and he didn't refer to them as brother and sister there, or brothers there, however, he said that they were, you know, related in thought. I can't remember the exact terminology, but they were, um, um, I, I wish I could find the spot real quick, but they were um, intertwined in his thought in the beginning, and I guess kind of that, to me, kind of might point out to a relationship where a brother and sister, that they were their functions or their being kind of is intertwined in the thought of, of uh, Eru at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And actually, you're right. Um, you were, uh, 
you were you were um, a little bit hesitant about it, but but it actually does say brother. Uh, this is uh, in in my edition on the top of page twenty one. But Manway was the brother of Melkor in the mind of Iluvatar, and he was the chief instrument of the second theme that that Iluvatar had raised up against the Discord. Um, oh, I now, see I'm, that now. Yeah, good. So I'm not sure necessarily if that means the same thing there as it means to say, for instance, that, uh, you know, Mandos and Lorien are brothers. Um, you know, when he's describing the relationships and describing sort of, you know, the character list, essentially, in the Valaquenta, um, I'm, I'm not sure that he doesn't mean something a little bit different. Um, certainly... I think you might be right, because the Manway and Melkor's powers don't really overlap all that much, but the Fianturi, they have there have they have to do with spirits, right? As right. I recall, and exactly. so there is an overlap there, right? And of course, Nien is their sister. So, and all three of those, as you say, they're all connected with each other. They are clearly brothers and sisters in the sense that they they are closely tied together um, in what they do. Now, you, you could say that Manway and Melkor are also in the sense that both of them have have a you know both a greatness of power and also are connected with authority. You know, Manway is the great example of of authority used rightly. That is the proper employment of delegated authority, um, submitting himself to Iluvatar completely, uh, but yet wielding the authority uh, and the dominion that uh, Iluvatar has given him in Arda um, as the as you know his 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 sort of regent uh, in Arda, whereas. Melkor, of course, is obviously the ultimate example of the misuse of delegated authority. Um, but but I, it, it does kind of seem that when when uh, when in the, in the Anuindaway he says that Manway was the brother of Melkor, um, that he sort of means that they're maybe that they're peers, that they're they're sort of comparable, that they're um, sort of close together. Um, I think peers is peers might be a good word. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas the brother sister relationship. Described in the Valaquenta, and I also, I mean, there, there's no reference ever in the narrative um, to Manway being the brother of Melkor in the, you know, Lorien and Mando sense. And you'd think that would come up at some point if they really were connected with each other in the same way that Lorien and Mandos are connected with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's a that's a great point. I'm glad you reminded us of that uh, of that passage. Um, what do people think about the comparison and contrast, I would say, between brother-sister relationships and husband-wife relationships? Um, let's see. Does anyone, does anyone want to comment on that? Okay, let's see. Dave, go ahead. At least in terms of the, the spousal relationships, it, there appears to be sort of a they, – they often appear to be complementary. I'm thinking in particular of Ale and Yovana, just in the sense that they're – their their roles are very um, they're, they're not they don't their roles don't cover the same area. In fact, later on with the dwarves, and I guess I'm jumping ahead, they they're actually sort of at odds with each other, um, which I think is very very interesting and and kind of similar with um, Manway and Varda. But then that's not quite as true with um, um, Mandos, and I can remember, never remember the name of his um, his spouse. Um, so there's there's at least some complementarianness um, going on there that I think is interesting. Yeah, Dave, I think that's a great point. I mean, I think that's, that's a, um, it's a wonderful way to think about it. If you think of the two, the two highest profile 
spousal relationships that we get are Manway and, 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 and Varda and Aule and Yavanna. Um, of course, I mean, there are other people who have spouses, but since everybody else who's married among the Valar has an invisible spouse. I mean, like I said, Vyra, who's, who's Mandos's uh, wife doesn't get any play. Uh, Lorian is married to Este. We hear about her once or twice, but we never really see her on, you know, on stage. Um, but, but of the two pairs that we do get, um, of the two pairs that we do get, we, 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 we see exactly that kind of a complimentary, uh, a complimentary, relationship. Aule and Yavanna, Yavanna deals with living things and, and Aule is the craftsman of inanimate things. Um, both of them in one sense, well, Aule is, is about making and Yavanna is about growing. And then of course, with, uh, with Varda and Manwe, you know, you have, you have light and air. Um, but even, you know, think of the, the business about the sight and the hearing, right? When, when, when the two of them are together, Manway can see further than anything else in Arda and he can, you know, his eyes can penetrate to the farthest reaches. And when Manway is with her, Varda can hear all things, uh, you know, throughout all of Arda. Um, so you can see sort of both elements there that I think are really important. Um, rather two, two elements that you can see in that description of Manway and Varda. One is the fact that their abilities are complementary to each other. One is the hearing and one is the seeing. Um, and so therefore together they are the perfect team, but not only like, do they, do their abilities team, uh, you know, sort of team up with each other, but they also amplify each other. Um, you know, so there is a, there is certainly a way in which the two of them together as a couple really, complete each other and, and, uh, and I don't know, uh, how to say it without just making it sound sort of cheesy, but they, 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 um, they're clearly designed to function together and they design, they work best when they are, uh, when they are working together. Um, so I think that that's, uh, I think that that's a really, uh, a really great point, Dave. Um, here, wait, Mike, I want to pick up on, uh, what you just wanted to, uh, talk about, uh, the spouses and their relationships. Yeah, I was just, uh, I found it striking that uh, of the spouse relationships we, we read about uh, Manway and uh, and Varda, Tolkien calls out that they are seldom parted, which to me reads as, you know, they love each other, the other spouses have their relationships. And then he very specifically calls out when he refers to Olmo, the, very, the, the second sentence is, he is alone. And so he's called out as not having a spouse. And then um, the, the next full paragraph, Olmo loves both elves and men. And I was interested, interested to note, if I was reading it correctly, that the other uh, Maiar who are spouses to each other have this love relationship for each other, but don't, maybe don't have the same explicit love for elves and men, whereas Olmo does. What it's an interesting question, and I'm not sure. Um, on the one hand, it certainly doesn't seem to be true. I would think that those who are married have sort of less love, or 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 or, or you know that they don't love others. I mean, Aule, for instance, um, both Aule and Yavanna are good examples because both of them are described several times as being um, being in a. Uh, a, a, a loving very much 
uh, the works of their hands in their in their domains. Yavanna loves living things, um, and you know, and she mourns for the suffering even of plants uh, on the earth. Um, so we certainly see her love for things, and of course, Aule, as we will see in a couple of weeks um, when we look at the the chapter on Aule and Yavanna and his creation of the dwarves. He loves his craftsmanship in a different way than than Yavanna loves the living creatures that are her care. Um, so it doesn't seem necessarily to be a deficit. I think it's a, but but I mean, I nevertheless, I think you're pointing to an interesting thing. Um, Olmo, on the one level, he sounds there's the in his description there's a moment when he sounds just a little bit Melkor like. That is, you'll remember in the Ainulindale. Um, when Melkor is described as going wrong or starting to go bad is when he is taking his, um, when he ceases to sort of be in concert with the rest of the Ainur all the time and he goes off on his own to seek the secret fire. Um, you know, that, that, that seeking of solitude by Melkor seems to be a bad sign in him. And um, therefore it would kind of seem that Olmo's not only his, um, not only Olmo's, lack of a spouse, but then you combine his lack of a spouse with his living off in the deeps of the seas on his own, not coming among the rest of the Valar very much. It sort of sounds potentially like, uh, you know, is this, um, is this of, you know, is, is this something like Melkor? Is he, is he, is he, you know, does he have some of those same impulses? And I think not, because I think as you point out, um, we're told that nevertheless, despite this fact, it's not that he is just isolationist. It's not that he is self-focused um, and and uh, wrapped up in his own concerns and desires like Melkor was. He, in fact, actively loves men and elves. Um, and it, it seems in some ways more than the rest of the Valar. He seeks them out more than the rest of them do. Um, uh, so I think, uh, I think that that's something that's really... Um, that's really intriguing about Olmo and it's easy to, uh, to, to, to kind of oversimplify his character. Uh, Joe, go ahead. All right. Um, I just found it really interesting that Olmo who, uh, when you kind of consider he's one of the most vast and kind of untamed cause he's like inside of everything. Um, how he's so connected and so, uh, really attached to the, to the elves and men and um it, he even stuck with them when they were under the wrath of the valar i just thought that was really interesting and uh you kind of made the connection there he didn't he, he doesn't have a spouse so i mean it's kind of easy to see that the love he has for them could have been more of his emotions being put there instead of with the spouse yeah and i don't know i mean and i you know i rather suspect that we could quickly get um get ourselves kind of pointed in a wrong direction if we think too much in terms of emotion about the spousal relationships among the Valar. Um, that I think it's, it's not, it's not, it's not sort of primarily about, you know, loving feelings in the same way that we might think about it. It's clearly about sort of their relationship and their connection with each other. Um, but, um, uh, anyway, I, I think it's it's uh, yeah. Alejandro makes a really great point there, um, though though he has no mic. Uh, and he says that it's like harmonies in the music of creation, and I think that that's a really important uh, thing to remember. To remember that initial overarching metaphor that we're given of the music uh, and you know of this great sort of symphony being done. That you have these these people. Um, 
you know, the fan, the fan Turi, you know, the, those, those, those three siblings that we get, Mandos and Lorian and Nienna, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like they're, you know, a section in the orchestra themselves. You know, I don't know what section they are, but anyway, they're, they're a section of the orchestra, um, you know, playing on similar notes and focusing on similar things. And then you have, you know, like the great duet of, of, of Varda and Manway who, you know, who, who have these complementary parts, which, uh, you know, which, which work with each other. And I, I think that that is a really good kind of rule of thumb to think about, um, to think about the, 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 the way that these, that these people work together. Um, I want to move on to uh, some of the other comments that were, that were made a while back again, still on the level of sort of general observations. Um, uh, someone, and I forget who it was. Um, uh, let me see here. Yeah. Joe, uh, Joe a while back had been talking about the connection, raised the issue of the general connection between the Valar and other mythological figures. And that is something, it's a kind of thinking, I definitely want to address that because it's something that people always think about when they're reading the Silmarillion. Um, if you know any, um, if you know any uh, Greek mythology, especially, or, or, you know, are familiar with, uh, you know, the, the, the pantheons of gods in, in other non-Christian mythologies, um, it is often really tempting to start making connections, right? And, uh, I, and I think that there are good reasons for that. Um, remember that he says that the Valar have often been called gods. And clearly what he is sort of pointing to, that, you know, these, these, these are, you know, he, 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 within his mythology, Tolkien has created this system whereby uh, different groups of men around the world will, you know, in later days create these different mythologies in which they will give different names and, and uh, to, to these, to these figures and understand them uh, perhaps in different ways. Um, so we see him sort of anticipating that and setting that up. But I think where we can be, I think that what, what we could be careful about is to say that um if you just start identifying them on a really one-to-one basis, that is, if you, um, if you start saying things like, okay, so Olmo is Poseidon, uh, you know, and Manway is Zeus, there's certainly parallels. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's certainly not a coincidence, um, that the, you know, the, the king of the gods in Greek mythology is Zeus, you know, the god of the god of storm and the and the god of the sky, and Manwe, who is the 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 lord of air, you know, the lord of the breath of Arda, um, is also the the king of the gods. I mean that's 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 obviously not a coincidence. And yet it is equally obvious that you can't just say, so, you know, Manway is Zeus and Zeus is Manway. I mean, good grief. There are so many differences between them. Um, so, uh, so I think that's, that's, uh, um, that's definitely something to keep in mind. Let's see, Laura, let me see if I can activate you here. Go ahead. Yeah. I, I just wanted to observe that it's kind of strange that, uh, Tolkien as a Christian would create this whole pantheon of basically gods. And it just, it, it just puzzles me a little bit why he would do that. Uh, do you have any sense of, of the why behind all this? Well, I mean, I think uh, it's a really good question. There are a couple things there, I think. Um, 
One is he is okay. Let me approach this. From, let me approach this from two directions. On the one hand, um, although he is doing it this way, even in doing it this way, he is still not creating a, a mythos. You know, not creating a mythology which is not consistent with Christian theology. That is, he is. Um, he is creating a sort of a spiritual hierarchy, which looks a lot like the traditional Christian spiritual hierarchy. That is, there is God who is transcendent uh, and infinitely above all things. And then there are these finite spiritual creatures who are not tied to the physical world. What, uh, what in Christian theology are called the angelic orders. And then um, in you know, and, and, and there are there are hierarchies among them. You know, there are some who are greater and some who are lesser, and they and they have different roles and are attached to different things. Um, so in those in that way, the, the you know the, the Ainur fit you know comfortably within the Christian theological system. So that's sort of the first thing that I would observe um, that he he is not creating something which is actually substantively in that way different from the Christian tradition. Though one thing, one thing I would point out in, in several of his letters, Tolkien gets really shy about actually using the word angels to describe the Ainur. And the reason he does that is that, you know, he, he was, he would point out when he was reluctant to do it, that there are, there are certain very definite things associated with the name angel. That is certain jobs that they do in, you know, in watching over certain things and in, in delivering God's messages to people. Um, and he didn't want to by calling he didn't want to call the Ainur angels and thereby potentially imply that uh, that they are doing um, that they fill the same role that angels fill, say in the you know in the Old Testament or something like that. Um, he thought that that might be misleading. So that was one major reason why he didn't want to apply that name to them, but they basically are angelic beings. So that's, that's one, but that's only one side of your question. Lord. it still doesn't answer the question. Okay. Now, given that he does that, why does he essentially make the, the, the sort of the pantheon of the Valar to resonate so much with, um, with the, uh, the sort of the, the pagan, uh, mythologies and I, I think the reason for that is really kind of connected with what um, is really connected with his general interest in mythology um, and what he saw in the mythology of these other peoples that, you know, he would say, though, I mean, although he was a Christian, he would not have said the the Greek mythology, that the Roman mythologies, that the, the Norse mythology were simply wrong. Um, there was, they were perceiving some true things about the world. They were perceiving some true things about creation uh, and about God's relationship to it. it. They weren't perceiving truth perfectly, but they were, they were perceiving something that, you know, that there is something there behind it. And so what he's done in creating his mythology um, in the Silmarillion is really cool in that he has created a mythology, which is still, within, you know, sort of neatly within the framework of the traditional Christian theology, the, the traditional Christian mythology, and yet it is one which accommodates the sort of truth aspects of all these other things. And so, so to, let me stop being 
totally vague about that. What are these truth aspects of these other mythologies? You know, what am I talking about when I talk about that? Well, again, you think about the way in which the, the, the primary way in which the Valar are like are sort of superficially like um, various pagan gods is the way that they're sort of attached to various spheres of creation. Like they've got the sky God and the sea God and the, the earth God and um, you know, the harvest goddess and all these other things. But I think in that you can see again, going back as Alejandro reminded us just before to the music thing in the original conception, in the Aino Indoe, they all play not just a role, but they, each one, each individual unique created being, um, you know, each Ainur, uh, or each Ainu, excuse me, uh, that Iluvatar makes, he makes each one different. Each one has a different, you know, part of his mind, a different part of his thought. And they themselves, with their own free will and their own sub-creative energy, um, adorn the theme and they all improvise and they do their thing. So he has, having each one you know, sort of in charge of different aspects of the world as they are, as is usually seen in pagan mythologies, is for Tolkien a reflection of how God makes use of the, or not makes use of, that's that's not quite right, that how he grants to the Ainur an actual role, not only in the conceptualization of creation, but in the actual, oh gosh, administration makes it sound horrible, but uh, the actual running of the show. And, um, so I, I think that that's that's one of the things that he you know saw happening uh, in some of these pagan mythologies that he really uh, that he really liked. Um, let's see, Dusty, you wanted to uh, to pitch in here. You kind of just covered it, but my question was: in Nidalendale, each one had a certain part of harmony within the the greater music. And each of the Ainu have a specific role, water, air, earth, like an element. What would you say Melkor's mastery or what his part is in reflection compared to the others for his job? Yeah, it, it, it's a good question. It's a good question that is in some ways, in some ways almost unknowable because we never really see an unblemished Melkor acting, right? We never actually see him um, because his fall happens so near the beginning of the music that his, his contribution to the, like, you know, we're told for instance, that Manway is the chief instrument of the second theme, right? So we know that, um, you know, you know, we can see the description of the second theme and we can read about Manway and we can get some sort of ideas that, you know, even right there in the beginning of the music, what Manway was like. But with Melkor, we don't know that. I mean, it's just sort of discord. Um, you know, it's sort of tempting. Um, I mean, I've, one theory that I've heard people propound is that, you know, since according to traditional uh, medieval understandings. This is not just medieval Europe, but in many places, the concept of of the four basic elements of of, of air, earth, fire, and water. Uh, you know, you have Manwe, Ulmo, and Aule as air, you know, water uh, and earth, and there's no Valar of fire. And so, some have suggested that 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 Melkor would have been the Valar of fire. Of course, remember heat and cold, extreme heat and extreme cold. Um, uh, 
Iluvatar explicitly says is is brought in through the through through the Discord, so that would seem potentially to sort of support that. I'm not sure if we can really go that far. Um, I'm not sure that Melkor might not might not have been more than that, um, even. But I, I, I what I would emphasize with with him, um, and I suppose this is a, I suppose this is a a good. Um, as good a time as any uh, to, uh, to to since we brought up uh, since you brought up Melkor Dusty and uh, uh, and his and his nature here, um, the passage describing um, the the passage describing Melkor and his sort of what what happened to him um, is I think one of the most one of the most interesting passages in the whole Valaquenta um, I, I, is one of the passages that I could really just read again and again and again, um, because it's, if you want to sort of look at Tolkien's understanding of the nature of evil, um, this is for me the, um, the central passage. Um, this is the second paragraph of the section of the enemies. It's on page 31 in my edition. Um, from splendor he fell, through arrogance, to contempt for all things save himself, a spirit wasteful and pitiless. Okay, so we have, he starts with splendor, and he falls from splendor. Um, he, falls, he falls from splendor to contempt. Okay, so that's, that's already by itself, that, that's really interesting, right? That kind of the opposite of splendor is contempt for all things save himself, um, which suggests, therefore, that splendor... Uh, you know the original state of splendor is is love and appreciation for other things um that's what it would mean to be a spirit who is not wasteful and pitiless but rather one who who is full of love and compassion um and therefore one who is fruitful and constructive rather than wasteful and what is the mechanism how does he fall from splendor to contempt arrogance right and then next sentence Understanding, he turned to subtlety in perverting to his own will all that he would use until he became a liar without shame. Um, that concept, understanding, he turned to subtlety, uh, is I think a really, um, a really wonderful um, uh, uh, the, the, the idea of the way that he's relating those concepts of of, of understanding, of wisdom, uh, and contrasting that with. Subtlety, which is a kind of an application of understanding, um, but it is not nearly the same. He began with the desire of light, but when he could not possess it for himself alone, he descended through fire and wrath into a great burning, down into darkness. It's just a really great uh, uh, passage. Uh, Laura, you just mentioned that it reminds you of the subtlety of Saruman, uh, which I was exactly what I was thinking of. I almost mentioned it. So since you mentioned it, I'll mention it anyway. Um, in, uh, my Anglo-Saxon class this semester, uh, we just, um, translated a, pa the, uh, a passage in Beowulf, which uses the Anglo-Saxon word that Saruman's name comes from. Saruman's name is based on the Anglo-Saxon word Searu, uh, spelled S-E-A-R-U. Um, Searu um, means, as an adjective, it means clever, cunning, subtle, wily, um, 
and that word is, has a very different and, an, and a frequently, not exclusively negative context, but a frequently negative connotation. And it is very much different from, uh, it's a totally different word used in a totally different way um, than uh, someone who is wise uh, and someone who is understanding and someone who is generous. Uh, so uh, Saruman, uh, you know, who, whose name literally, you know, is Sayaruman. I mean, that's, that would, that's just an Anglo-Saxon word with the spelling slightly changed to make it easier to read. Um, you know, he, his name means, uh, you know, cunning man, wily man, deceptive man, potentially, um, ingenious man, but ingenious in a, in a dangerous slick, uh, and, uh, and also mechanical way. Um, interestingly, Sayaru as a noun, um, is actually a synonym um, a potential synonym or a near synonym to the Anglo-Saxon word orthunk. Um, the, it's, it's, it's Saruman and his tower, like their names actually mean almost exactly the same thing. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, that, that kind of knowledge, that kind of subtlety, that's what, that's what Melkor has too. Um, and it's very different from the wisdom of characters like, uh, uh, like Manway, but of course also like Nienna, who I would like to get back to, uh, later on. Um, I see Mike, you wanted to, to pitch in about Melkor. Yes. Uh, well, I, I, I agree with you that that single sentence about, uh, Melkor passing from splendor through arrogance to contempt is just fascinating. And it's interesting to me to think about the, the changes that Melkor's going through, it reminded me of a passage that I underlined in last week's reading. Um, Melkor uh, wanted to go into Arda to order all things for the good of the children of Iluvatar. And then I underlined controlling the turmoils of the heat and the cold that had come to pass through him. And I think that phrase is really interesting because I think that also gives you a window in on what Tolkien was maybe thinking about or trying to convey in terms of the changes that Melkor was going through, that these turmoils were getting were getting worse and worse, and his ability to control them or to attempt to control them was getting less and less as he was passing through these phases. And so you can flip that around and think about, okay, well, if that's what evil is all about, then the ability to control those kinds of turmoils is maybe connected to how, uh, you know, a good or more noble character might behave. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, and here I would also, in that con in that connection, highlight uh, the use of the adjective "wasteful" in the middle of that same description too, which is which is a kind of a surprising uh, adjective, I think, in some ways. Um, he he is a spirit wasteful and pitiless. Yeah, he, he he's not under control. He he is about lack of control. Then at that point, and he um, yeah he he's. He's fooling himself on a really profound level when he says, oh, yes, I want to control the heat and the cold. First of all, no, you don't. Uh, secondly, no, you're not thinking of the good for the good of them. But thirdly, you couldn't even if you wanted to. Well, actually, maybe you could if you really wanted to. But since you don't really want to, you certainly lack the ability to. Um, and I think that that's uh, um, that's good. Yeah, Mike, uh, 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 here, actually, uh, what you were just typing, just... Uh, Go ahead and point that out. Well, I was just underlining the adjectives that Tolkien was using to describe uh, Melkor, and we see wasteful, squander, spent, just uh, 
in a couple of different areas describing Melkor's character, which is really interesting. Yeah, 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 I, I agree. I mean, and that's, it's one of the, you know, as I, as I said, this is, this is a, a place where I often go back to, you know, to sort of point to and explain what evil is about. And this, this is, you know, rel- this becomes relevant, you know, when you're, when you're wanting to talk about Sauron in the Lord of the Rings, this is relevant when you're wanting to talk about Gollum in the Lord of the Rings, um, when you're wanting to talk about Saruman. I mean, all of this, Melkor is the archetype for all evil creatures. Like this is, this is, this is how evil works. This is what evil is about in Tolkien's mind. And, um, and you can see, I think you're very right to point that out. Um, how he is wasteful. Uh, he squanders his power. Um, he spends himself, you know, he's lesser. We will see later on in the story as, 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 uh, Dave is reminding us in type here. Um, there, this is, um, this is something that we will see later on. He is, he, Melkor is going to become lesser. Uh, you know, he, he will be way, way less powerful later on in this book. Because as time goes on, the more he uses his power, the weaker he's going to become because he's going to be squandering himself uh, more and more. Uh, let's see. Joe, I think you wanted to uh, you want to talk about uh, Melkor's attitude towards Aule, which would be great. Actually, jealous of him. It says they were um, similar in their powers. Like uh, when they were created, they were very similar, had sort of the same things that they did. And then it mentioned that um, the Noldor learned most of their craft from Aule. And, you know, right next to that, it mentions Melkor being jealous. And I thought it was interesting because you could kind of connect Melkor wanting to have dominion over these things and also, you know, wanting to have their attention on him, obviously. But they're much more focused on someone else who's very similar in craft to him, which uh, is kind of connection. I thought that really kind of emphasizes his jealousy and his personality much more. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and that's really... You know, again, you talk about the nature of evil and sort of the core of of Melkor's character. It's about self-focus. You know, it's about his self-absorption and how, you know, what happened to Melkor is that it became all about him. That's why he it is through arrogance that he, def- he descends from splendor to contempt. Um, and and I agree with you that contrast between him and Aule uh, is a really significant one because on the one hand they too are also kind of similar you know they are both great makers they are both you know they can they they have some some you know many similar kinds of power but he melkor has this comp- almost completely opposite view aule is he does not seek himself you know he is he is not um he is not he's not jealous um uh, he, 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 he doesn't mind. He wants, he loves the things that he makes and he does it, you know, for the glory of Iluvatar and that's all fine. Um, so yeah, I think that that's a really, that that's a really great point. Um, let's see, uh, Elizabeth, you wanted to talk about, uh, Varda and Melkor, I think, right? Uh, yes, um, I had noticed uh, an allusion. Um, it's on page twenty-six of my copy that there's this prior relationship apparently between Varda and Melkor. It says that she knew him, a new Melkor, before the making of the music, and she rejected him, and he hated her and feared her more than all the others. And I just kind of wondered if we know the story behind that. It sounds like it would be a really interesting story. Uh I, I agree, but we don't. Yeah, <laughs> we never really get uh, we never really get uh, much more than that. Um, 
But remember, I mean, the, the, the main thing I would point to, the, the, the number one thing associated with Varda is light. Um, you know, we're told that the light of Iluvatar lives still in her face. And so therefore, if we recall, um, uh, uh, back in the description of Melkor, part of which I just read, remember that uh, he began with the desire of light, but when he could not possess it for himself alone, he descended through fire and wrath into a great burning. Um, so I think that we can see there a kind of a glimpse of um, a, a kind of a glimpse of, of what uh, this connection with Varda was because, um, he, you know, she's, she is light. The light of Iluvatar is in her face. So I, I don't want to go, you know, something that I am beginning to, uh, that, that I'm right now tiptoeing around the edges of and want to be careful of is I am, I'm beginning to sound as if, you know, Varda is merely an allegory for the light of Iluvatar. Uh, and I don't think that that's necessarily right. I, I, that, that would be cheapening Varda as a character and Varda's role in the mythology to say that she just represents the light of Iluvatar. She is an independent creature with her own free will, but she is closely associated with the light of Iluvatar. And so I think that we can see a real connection between Melkor's desire for light and his um, approach <laughs> to however that worked out, his approach to Varda, you know, him, him, him making a run at Varda um, and her rejecting him. Um, because of course he could not, again, no, notice the emphasis in that passage on Melkor. It doesn't say that he couldn't possess light. It says he couldn't possess it for himself alone. The kind of greedy desire that he had for light. Cause that's the thing about light right? Of course you can have light. Everybody can have light. When the light is shining, you know, everyone can share it. He didn't want to share it. He wanted the light all to himself, and that's what he couldn't have. Um, he, Iluvatar was not keeping his light from him. Um, you know, Iluvatar was willing to give him his light. Um, Varda, I don't think, was saying, was like just being standoffish from the beginning and saying, you know, Melkor, I, I am, like, you know, I... I never want any, I, I want nothing to do with you, but he's not going to, he, he, he can't have it all to himself. Um, the kind of relationship that that passage seems to imply, perhaps he was seeking with Varda, she wasn't having. Um, so, uh, but, but so yeah, I think that that's a really important passage. We don't know, we never get told the story, but I think if we, if we sort of look at those two passages together, we can kind of get a glimpse of uh, what was sort of going on there, I think, perhaps. Um, Dave, you wanted to, uh, uh, to, to contribute here, I think. Um, I, I see a second thing going on with light too, especially in contrast with dark, um, uh, in that at least I think later on light sort of implies disclosure and, and having your deeds and yourself revealed. And, um, and that's something that Melkor increasingly as time goes on is afraid of. You know, he, he, I think he, he pursues the darkness because it allows, you know, and, and, and this is, um, in, in line with his pursuing solitude too, that he likes the secretiveness. He likes sort of being unrevealed. He likes keeping his thoughts to himself. Um, he doesn't want necessarily want other people to know what he's up to. Um, and I think that's that's not where his desire for light comes from earlier on, but that I think that's where his fear of it later on comes from. The light shows him for what he really is, um, 
and what he's really up to. It shows that he's not a benevolent guy that's working for the greater good, but rather that he's a selfish jerk. And he, know, and he knows that deep down, and he doesn't want necessarily everyone else to know that. I mean, maybe I'm oversimplifying, but that's something that I've sort of always struck me. No, I think that that's a great point. And I mean, here, I think we can, it's hard, it's hard for me to avoid, um, and I can't imagine Tolkien would, you know, not also have been thinking of um, the uh, of the the passage in the Gospel of John where Jesus talks about this, and you know, John, you know the Gospel of John very interested in light and darkness uh, metaphors and things too, um, and uh, talking about um, how the 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 light has come into the world and the dark and the darkness comprehended it not, and that the 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 darkness hated the light. Um, people hate the light because their deeds are evil, you know, so like they, 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 they shun the light and want to be in the darkness because they don't want to be exposed. I mean, I I think that we can see, um, even in the gospels, Jesus making that emphasis. And I think that we we can see that too. Again, I would point out what he sort of two things, uh, Dave, that I was thinking of, um, as you were talking, you know, on the one hand, his, his, his separating himself, you think of how uh, almost silly it is to say, yeah, I'm going to go off by myself into the void to seek light because I want light. You know, Melkor, that doesn't make any sense from the first. <laughs> if you want light, if you want to, to, to get more of the light of Iluvatar, we'll hang out with the other, with the other Valar, with, with, with the other Ainur. You know, that is, you know, go to the, to, you know, go right in front of Iluvatar's face, not, not around behind his back. That's not where the light is. In other words, he's really, apparently attempting to fool himself from the beginning. It's not seeking light that he's doing. Um, Those aren't his actions. His actions are, as you say, to hide himself. And then again, in that same paragraph in, in of the enemies, um, you know, when he couldn't possess the light for himself alone, he descended through fire and wrath into a great burning down into darkness and darkness. He used most in his evil works. So yeah, he descends into darkness and becomes sort of the Lord of darkness. Um, that's not, um, that's not a very high title and it does reflect, uh, and you think of how this, that, uh, the, 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 the trend that you're describing, Dave gets sort of made literal and, and, and visible, um, in later, in later moments in the story, um, when Morgoth, Melkor, um, will, you know, sort of put thick clouds up above him so that the sun doesn't shine down, uh, on where he's living and where his servants are, you know, and that's like, you know, he's, 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 he's hiding himself from the light. There are other reasons for that too, but, but again, we can still see that same, that same kind of trend. Um, good. I mean, I think that those, those are some, those are some really good, those are some really good points. Um, let's see. Uh, let me, let's see, Jack, you wanted to talk about, uh, something else, I think. Hi. Yeah. I wanted to, um, my question was about the, uh, scale of these beings. And I always like to get a sense of the scale of anything. Um, and there's, I'm not talking just about their, physical height or whatever but but their power and their, their their grandeur and splendor and there's a couple passages that that help me with that in this um one is near the beginning when it describes when they come into uh Ea. well they come into uh Ea at the beginning i assume at the beginning of time but they don't go into arda right away arda isn't there and from what i gather 
um, there may have been a, a gap of uh, ages and ages and maybe billions of years in our own, our own terms um, before um, they even descended into Arda. And they were out in the universe doing their labors or whatever. And a second, uh, a second passage later on, it says, it's just describing their splendor, and but it's saying this is just a veil. Um, I'm reading here, their true being, which goes back into regions and ages far beyond our thought. And I think those two things just are interesting when this whole chapter is about trying to understand them. We're really bringing them down into human terms. I mean, not even the elves. Um, could understand them. Um, I just think it's a useful to think of that when when our whole discussion tonight is trying to understand what they are and what they're like. Yeah, Jack, I think that's a really great reminder um, that's very important to keep in mind. All of this stuff is metaphorical in in a very basic way. I mean, going back to, you know, several steps back in our conversation here, thinking about brother, sister, and, and husband, wife, uh, that's, uh, there's a way in which that's very deeply true, but it's also very deeply metaphorical. Um, that is to say, you know, I, how much does the relationship between Manwe and Varda really have in common with the relationship between a, you know, a human husband and a human wife? I mean, like, they're just not that similar. As you say, they are, they are way, way far beyond, um, beyond the, uh, the, 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 you know, any scope of not only of human action, but of human comprehension, um, that we're being given these things as metaphors. Um, I would also uh, sort of recall the, um, the passage that we talked about in the first session, uh, back when we were doing the Anuindalay last week, um, that that puzzling passage that, that I went through a little bit um, back on page 18, the passage that says, and this habitation that is Arda, might seem a little thing to those who consider only the majesty of the Ainur and not their terrible sharpness. Um, that is, you know, he brings up already in the Ainuindale. Remember, these are huge. You know, these. You know, Manwe is one of the uh, the, the 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 central, um, you know, origins of the music which forms the the being of the entire universe, and yet, in some sense, the mythology says these beings are living on this globe, right? They're living on this world. And, you know, so in what sense can they be said to be living here? So, you know, thinking of, um, you know, there will be times in, um, there will be times in the story, in the Silmarillion, when one might be tempted, when characters in the story are sort of tempted to think, you know, oh, the Valar don't take any thought for Middle-earth. You know, Middle-earth is so far away from Valinor. You know, they're way over, you know, the Valar are way over there across the ocean, big ocean, you know, and they're way over there. We're way over here and they're, they're not paying any attention. They're, they're you know, they're, and, and just to remember, hey, you know, not only is the distance of that ocean really small, this whole planet is so tiny that we had to pause and say, now you may think it seems strange that these beings, you know, 
could even fit or would pay the least attention to this tiny little speck of dirt in the galaxy that is this world. Um, but let me explain how that's not true. And that's again, you know, where he talks about the base of the pillar and uh, as broad as the, as broad as the, the, the earth. And then, you know, up to descending to a point as bitter as a needle. Um, you know, they, they, they do care. Um, they are, sufficiently detail oriented that they do actually come down uh you know into the world and are interested in the in the uh in the um in the uh, the activities here in the world but but yeah it, if ever one is tempted to think oh yes the the valar they're just not paying attention to the rest of the world um i think you know jack your reminder there is a really important one um these are huge, huge beings and our compre our, the comprehension, you know, the way that we're given to understand them here is a very, very sort of partial one. Um, let's see, uh, uh, Joe, you wanted to, to, to add something? Yes. I just wanted to mention, like, uh, <clears throat> it's kind of easy to overlook cause I don't know. I, I kind of overlooked it before how, you know, every Luvatar is the almighty person who created everything, but he pretty much lets, the Valar run the show and um, them control everything. And, uh, I mean, I just thought that was kind of an interesting point, how even though he's the big guy on campus, the, the Valar control everything, and it's because maybe their music helped create it, therefore they're going to rule it. But um, I just thought that was really interesting, that them not even being the most powerful person, they were still the ones pretty much controlling everything there. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, and that's something I'm glad you bring that up is because it's something reflecting back on our discussion on the Ina Lindaway. Um, I had been kind of thinking that I, that I, I didn't quite emphasize that as much as I would have wanted to. So I think it's a really important point in creation. And of course, in the process of history, um, in other words, the rest of the stories that we're going to get, which, um, which uh, 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 is basically the working out in time of the music that we that they sang at the beginning. The role that the Einer play is really huge. Iluvatar does an immense amount of delegating. He really says to them, "Okay, I have given you the power to do this. Now go. You know, I've given you, I, I have given you, you know, I've given each one of you parts of my thought. You can all work together. You can all improvise. Do what you want. Use your own." artistic gifts, your own creativity, uh, your own sub-creativity, rather, that I have placed within you, um, and and I'm going to let you go, and I'm going to let you do it, And but it's really going to count. I'm not just going to, like, take suggestions from you and then do my own thing. I'm going to actually let you do it. I'm going to actually put you in charge. You have real authority over these things. And yet, this doesn't mean at all that Iluvatar is less in control. And this is what, what he emphasizes, um, of course, when he's coming back to Melkor after the music is over and saying, everything has its uttermost source in me. No one can alter the music in my despite. Nobody can make the music play what I, something that I did not want played. In the end, although they're all improvising, although they have real genuine uh, control over the part that they play, they can do what they want to do and they have actual power Yet, nevertheless, at the end of the day, the music played is the music that Iluvatar wanted played. Um, and that's what, you know, I was saying last week briefly that the Aino Lindale is one of the most, one of the fullest and most 
uh, beautiful and compelling, I think, um, literary depictions of the way that free will and predestination go together. And I think it's, it's one of the places where we can see that really most clearly. So you're right, again, to, uh, uh, Joe, to remind us of that in the context of the Valaquenta, when we begin to see the ways in which the Valar are operating in the world, um, they really are in charge of things. Manway is actually running the world, and that's not just like a new delegation. Um, that's a reflection of how things were from the beginning in the music. Um, they were all, the Valar were the, the, the Ainur were always running the show in the sense of that, like they were making the music, which you know, in some sense that we can't really understand, created the script that's going to that that is shown in the vision and then is going to unroll itself in history. Um, but nevertheless, this none of that means that Iluvatar is not in control or that he is like a deistic god setting things in motion and then sitting back and doing nothing and, and, and acting in no way. He is acting. Um, he's acting through the Valar, who are doing his will, even as they are making their own free choices uh, to act. It's really, uh, um, it's really some really cool stuff. Let me, let's see, let me come back now. Some of you guys have been typing some things which I want to pick up on. Um, let me see. Let's see. Hmm. Sorry, kind of reading over things here now. Matt Shaw, Matt, you had an awesome suggestion. Matt Shaw sent an awesome suggestion to me by email, um, that I actually get one of my students to, uh, sort of be my producer and watch over things and, uh, uh, you know, keep a clear cue of things for me so I don't have to sort through things. This is an awesome idea, Matt, and I'm uh, in the process of getting somebody to uh, to do that. Um, let's see. Okay, yeah, Laura. I just wanted to make a comment about um, how Tolkien uh, – seems to always make things more complicated instead of making things simpler. You know, our, our modern mindset is to kind of simplify everything. And instead of simplifying, he always seems to kind of take it to the next level. He'll, he'll say, okay, this has this name and it's also got this other name and you know, his horse has this name. And so <laughs> I, I'm just always blown away uh, by how complicated he makes everything. So yeah, I mean, it's true that it is It is very much... And again, that's another reason that, that it's another thing that makes The Silmarillion a hard book. Like, you don't have to do... Like, do we have to know the name of Ulmo's horns? <laughs> you know? Um, but, you know, no, maybe we don't have to, but we gain something by knowing it. Even without knowing anything else, just the sound of it. I love the sound of the Ulumuri. Um, you know, I mean, he has just said, uh, let me see if I can find the passage here. Um, the name of it is so perfectly fitting to the description, uh, that he's just given, uh, of the horns. It's just, uh, it's just wonderful here. Let me see where we, it's gotta be page, uh, page 27, I think. Yes. Um, the trumpets of Manway are loud, but Ulmo's voice is deep as the deeps of the ocean, which only he has seen. Uh, and then uh, he talks about it right in the next paragraph. Um, 
he will pass far inland up first of the sea, and there make music upon his great horns, the Ulumuri, that are wrought of white shell. And those to whom that music comes hear it ever after in their hearts, and longing for the sea never leaves them again. Um, I'm reminded of comments that Michael Drought made um, uh, when he was visiting uh, my campus last spring, um, talking about Tolkien's, uh, the, the, the fun word that Michael Drought used about that, Tolkien's phono-aesthetic sense, that is, his, his sense of, you know, the aesthetics of the sounds of, of words and parts of words, um, you know, that, you know, Drought maintains that, you know, the only person in the entire 20th century who had a phono-aesthetic sense that was anything near as finely tuned as Tolkien was James Joyce. James Joyce gets a lot of credit for that among Joyce people. Um, but uh, Drought maintains that Tolkien's uh, is at least as sharp, and I agree. Uh, uh, the Ulumuri is just a wonderful... Uh, a wonderful name, uh, which really you can you can you can really sort of hear and even feel when you say it. Uh, the sound of the sound of of Ulmo's, uh horns there, really great. Um, okay, let's see. Um, other issues that be, other sort of general issues, or, or I guess we could actually shift now to some specific characters. You know, okay, there's one character that I would want to bring up that we haven't said almost a thing about yet and that is Nienna. Nienna, what do you uh what do you guys make of Nienna? Nienna is possibly my fa- no no not possibly. Nienna is definitely my favorite one of the Valar. Um and you know it's, it's interesting I was talking earlier about um you know parallels between the Valar and the 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 pantheons of of various pagan mythologies. Uh you know the one who rarely gets a really direct parallel is Nienna. She's kind of different. Um, but uh, what do you guys think? What do you make of, uh, of, of, of Nienna? Mike, why don't you go ahead? I'll just start with the observation of uh, that the other characters we've met, they're lord of this, master of that, ruler of this. And then Nienna is acquainted with grief and so yes. from the first sentence, there's this key difference. She's not lord or master or ruler over a realm or a space or a group of beings. She's acquainted with an emotion, which is fascinating. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. She is acquainted with grief. Um, her, and, and, you know, But I think this is something that we have to kind of keep in proper focus it couldn't sound like Nienna's really weak, right? So Nienna, she is the goddess of crying. She cries all the time, and she really knows what it's like to be sad because she's always depressed. That's 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 not the way she is. You know, don't forget that. Um, you know, back in the Ainulindale, the description of the three themes and of the the you know the the, the conflict, the third theme. Um, was deep and wide and beautiful, but slow and blended with an immeasurable sorrow from which its beauty chiefly came. The chi- the beauty of the third theme primarily comes from its sorrow. The sorrow, the lamentation of Nienna is a powerful, powerful thing. Um, uh, a, a point that my, uh, my former student Liz Bateman made in her thesis, uh, I've podcasted a conversation with Liz about her thesis uh, uh, a while back last year. And uh, 
you know, in her thesis, she made the point when she was, she had a, most of a chapter about Niena, um, and she, she made the point, you know, that if Tolkien says explicitly that, that Manway was one of the primary, uh, you know, was, was, was the primary voice of this, of the second theme. He doesn't explicitly say that Niena is one of the primary voices of the third theme, but it seems really likely <laughs> that that was the case, given this connection with sorrow. Um, so I think that that's a, um, that that's a really, uh, a really important, uh, a really important thing to keep in mind. But, but Mike, I want to come back to the, the, the passage that you read. She is acquainted with grief. Um, and there's one thing that I want to point out about this. I pointed it out in, um, in the, um, in the class when we covered this passage, uh, last spring. And Laura, I think that you've just hit on it, um, in text here. Um, this passage contains that, that, in fact, Mike, that passage that you read is one of the only direct word for word Bible quotations that we get in the Silmarillion. Um, she is acquainted with grief. That phrase acquainted with grief is a quotation. Um, Jesus is described. Well, the Messiah in Isaiah 53 is described as being acquainted with grief. Um, it's, you know, in that passage, Isaiah 53, which is the, the, the longest, greatest, most famous, uh, prophecy of the Messiah, um, you know, most frequently quoted in the new Testament. Um, uh, the, the, the Messiah, one of the, one of the sort of the characteristics of the coming predicted Messiah is that he would be acquainted with grief. Um, so there is, um, there is something that is really, I think, important, um, about that. It just sort of, it's not like that by itself, like totally explains Niena and goodness knows I'm not wanting to oversimplify and say, so therefore Niena is Jesus. That's not really the same, but, um, but I think that, uh, that at least gives us a glimpse. Um, Isaiah says that one of the things that's going to define the Messiah, um, you know, that's going to, to, to define God's anointed one on earth is going to be the fact that he is acquainted with grief, not just the fact that it means he's going to suffer, but that he is acquainted with the grief of others. Because of course, the primary emphasis of that prophecy of the Isaiah 53 prophecy is that surely, you know, he will bear um, our iniquities that are, that, that the sorrows and the sufferings of people he takes upon himself. Nienna doesn't take other people's suffering upon herself, but she doesn't weep for herself. Um, she weeps, she weeps for others. Um, uh, you know, and the sound of mourning was woven into the themes of the world before it began. So I think that, uh, uh, you know, that, that, that sort of points, points us in this direction. Um, Dave, you wanted to, to add something? You sort of started leading into this already, but, um, we were discussing Elizabeth pointed out, asked the question, uh, uh is Nina herself just really sad or is she, or is, sort of all grief and sadness channeled through her. And I was looking at that passage where it says that she does not weep for herself, um, which I think is very interesting. And then also um, the, the second half of that, that she, that those who hearken to her learn pity and endurance and hope. And um, I, in particular, the first half of that, her that you learn pity, I think that there's, that she's not simply sort of sad, but she, she's, there's a certain amount of, that it's a sympathetic sadness, that, there, that there's a, a sympathy for the wrongs that happen in the world, for injustice, um, for those who suffer evil. 
and that she teaches that to other people. That um, so she's not just about um, grief, but also compassion and pity and sympathy and empathy, I guess. Um, and uh, and then also she puts a positive spin on it. She teaches endurance and hope, and I think that's very interesting. The connection, the 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 sort of the trail from grief to pity and sympathy to um, uh, hope and perhaps optimism. And uh, and I and I don't want to be a plagiarist, but um, Brandon in one of the chat windows also pointed out uh, that uh, or, um, Gandalf um, used to hang out with her. I think. Is a good point. Maybe Brandon should talk about that. But um, uh, Gandalf is certainly, I think, one of the, you know, I think one of the defining characteristics of him is that he was also an extremely sympathetic guy. He he was a guy who 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 took the time to get to know um, various races and people and was very concerned about what was going on in the world as opposed to he he's basically the polar opposite of the paradigm of Belcor and Saruman and Sauron guys who. Um, turn inward rather than outward towards other people. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, and I, I, I want to, first of all, I want to step back and make explicit. Um, I know that several of you know this, but first time readers of uh, the Silmarillion might miss it. Um, we're talking, we're talking about Gandalf. We're talking about Oloran, who is the final one of the Maiar, who's discussed in the section of the Maiar at the top of page 31 of in, in my edition. Um, Gandalf mentions in the in the passage when Frodo and Faramir in the two towers are talking about who the gray pilgrim is and what his names are Faramir mentions that he once again of once like gave a list of a bunch of his names and says that in the west he was called Aloran um so Aloran the Meyer this is this is the Meyer who will be called Gandalf when later on he comes to middle earth um and yeah he 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 used to hang out with Nienna, you know, and he clearly learned a lot from Nienna. Um, you can see that same that same shape. I, I just want to read uh, the sentence, uh, Dave, that 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 gets at what you were describing there. Um, in later days, in other words, when he became Gandalf, he was the friend of all the children of Iluvatar and took pity on their sorrows. And those who listened to him awoke from despair and put away the imaginations of darkness. Um, and so you can see the connection there. Um, from from sorrowing, from lamentation, to pity, to hope, right? He took pity on their sorrow. So he has learned from from Nienna. He has a Nienna-like outlook. He he perceives, he understands, he appreciates the sorrow of other creatures, um, and he takes pity on them. And in doing so, he teaches them. Um, uh, he 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 teaches them to put away despair. The connection between Nienna and therefore also Eloran and hope is, I think, a really important, um, a really important thing. A really, just one of the most, to me, one of the most fascinating things about her. I mean, if you just read sort of the initial descriptions of her, you know, the, the lamentation and the sorrow and the weeping, um, hope seems like the last thing you would associate with her. Like, you know, Nana is the downer among the Valar, but she's not. Um, she is like the rock almost. I mean, she is this, that's what, that's what hope is. Hope is the anchor. Right. Um, so, I mean, I think that that's a, that's a really, that's a really important thing to keep in mind. And that's what Tolkien, and, and I would actually, I would sort of expand this to say, 
Um, you know, warning, we, as we read the rest of the Silmarillion, we're going to encounter lots of grief and much pity, I hope, will be stirred up in us as we read it. Um, the experience of reading the Silmarillion ultimately is one of having pity stirred up for other people's sorrows. People's lives are going to be really horrible throughout the Silmarillion. Horrible things are going to be happening continually again and again and again. The result of that is not... Shouldn't be, hopefully, despair. And this is a thing that I think that a lot of people can miss. You know, people will read The Silmarillion and say, man, this is like the most depressing book I've ever read. No, at least it shouldn't be. Ultimately, it isn't. Um, don't forget the, the, the Nienna trajectory, right? From grief and sorrow to pity to hope. And ultimately, the final note, I think, um, the final focus, the final thrust of the of the whole Silmarillion, is towards hope through Nienna. Um, so I think that that's uh, that's um, that's a, a really important thing. Uh, uh, Mike, you just mentioned in text a, a really interesting point. So, you know, Este will heal your body, and Nienna will heal your soul. Yeah, and I think that's the significance of the segue. He's just described Este, the wife of Lorien, um, who 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 can heal. Um, you know, she is the gentle healer of hurts and weariness. Um, she She's a bodily healer. And then the segue we get to Nienna is mightier than Este is Nienna. So we have this connection. Nienna is like Este. She too is a healer. But the healing that Nienna brings really transcends the healing that Este brings. Um, so I think that that's a, that's a really... Uh, that's a really cool thing. Um, so yeah, so Nienna, we definitely can't, can't leave without discussing Nienna. Um, uh, uh, Mandos, anything want, and, and anyone want to say anything about Mandos? I think Mandos is a really interesting, uh, character too. Um, any, uh, any, any, any thoughts on Mandos here? Let's see. Uh, Joe, let's see. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Well, one thing I kind of want to mention was the name differences that, you know, Mandos and, uh, uh, Lorian, how they're not really their true names. Uh, I forget what their true names are, but um, Namo and Irmo, yeah, Namo and Irmo, yes. Uh, that's really cool. I wanted to point it out because you didn't mention that earlier. I just wanted to kind of jump on that because I forgot to say anything. So I'll let someone else go now talking about him. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I'm 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 glad that you brought that up. I think possibly. Anyone who has been following along with the names and is feeling confident with things, you know, you get to the Feon Turi and it, it just kind of goes out the window. It's like, okay, so now let's talk about Lorien and Mandos. Except Lorien and Mandos aren't really their names. Their real names are this. And now I'm going to proceed never to mention their real names again, having told you that those are their names. And then they also get this collective name, the Feon Turi. So, yeah, it's really hard to keep track of. Namo is Mandos. Irmo is Lorien. But those names, Mandos and Lorien, are really the names of the places. Mandos is the names of the of the halls of waiting, where Namo, the Valar, dwells. Uh, uh, Lorien is the name of you know this sort of the 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 paradise of peace and healing, where Irmo, the Valar, lives. Um, the interesting thing, therefore, is that these two guys are associated so clearly with. Their places, that they're the only people. That first of all, they're the only people um, who have places where they hang out. 
well, of course, with the exception of their sister, Nienna, the three of them, those three siblings, each of them have a place. Now you've got Teniquitil, the, the, the holy mountain where Manway's throne is, but Manway and Varda are not, are not like associated with that place in the same way that the Feanturi are associated with their places. Mandos and Lorien are the places of those people so intent, so intensely that they, they become their very names. Um, so I think that that's, that, that that's by itself a cool thing that as we can see par- a huge part of their identity, what they do is associated with where they are. That is Lorien with the bringing of peace and healing and Mondos with the halls of judgment and the halls of waiting um, where the souls come after they die. Um, so I think it's, it's the connection with the function. Nienna, interestingly, who does have halls that she lives in, um, you know, and these, these, these places, this place where she stays. And I love the, her, you know, the windows of her hall look outward from the world. Um, I just, I mean, goodness, there's nothing that we get in Nienna's description that is not really interesting and really cool to think about. But anyway, but she's not, we, we don't even know what those places are called. So she's not identified with it. Uh, to to the same extent as the other two, um, but uh, um, yeah. He, what do you make of uh, thinking of um, thinking of of Mandos now again? What do you make of the different roles that he has? Because there are several things that he's associated with. Um, I would say sort of three major things that we're told about him. One is that he is. He's the keeper of the hall, essentially the halls of the dead, the halls of waiting where, where, you know, when, when, when both elves, well, when elves and men die, they go to Mandos and there are halls apart for men where they sort of linger for a while before they leave the circles of the world. Um, but the elves stay in Mandos for a long time. Um, so he, 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 he runs the halls of waiting. He runs Mandos, um, that's one thing that he does. The second thing that he does is he is the doomsman of the Valar. He decrees the judgments, though he only does so at the at the bidding of Manwe, and he, um, uh, but but he 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 is the one who decrees judgment. And third is knowledge. He never forgets anything, and he knows everything everything that's going to happen, with only a few exceptions. Things that they did not see in the vision, things that still lie in the freedom of Ilavatar. That is stuff that he has not revealed to the Valar. Um, everything else he knows. So knowledge, death, and and judgment, uh, doom in the archaic sense that Tolkien pretty persistently uses. That. Um, what do you think? Any any. Any thoughts about that, about those things? Mike, what are you thinking about? I, I just found it interesting that there's that clause at the end of the Houses of the Dead sentence. He's the keeper of the Houses of the Dead and the summoner of the spirits of the slain. And I was just interested in, interested in that, in that, um, you know, uh, is there something going on there where if there's an unnatural death, a murder or a, a death in warfare, that the soul or the spirit in... in the system that Tolkien is setting up, Mandos has an, a, a sort of an added function there where he has to help that spirit find its way to his houses of the dead, whereas someone who goes through a natural death, he doesn't need to do that. I, I Maybe that's you know too fine a point, but I underlined that, and I had a question about it. Yeah, it, it's an interesting question, and I'm not quite sure uh, what to say about it. Um, we don't... 
I don't think we ever get enough specific information that we can really, you know, like exactly what is Mandos's role with this or that. We do see a couple things. Um, I love the line um, when right uh, a little bit later on, right before Fanor dies, uh, and Mandos has that comment. He says, "To me, Fanor shall come." You know, before long. Um, which sort of suggests that he doesn't take a, an extremely active role in that. He he doesn't say, I'm going to go fetch Feanor pretty soon. He's like, to me, Feanor shall come. Um, and the same thing is implied when Baron is lying, dying, and Luthien says to, you know, asks him to linger, basically. Um, uh, hang out for me. So I, I think that we can see here, um, uh, I think that we need, that, that we can see here a general trend that souls in some sense, like of their own, not of their own volition. That's not quite a right way to say it, but uh, that they tend to sort of make their way to Mendos uh, themselves. So I'm not sure how active he is in there. And we don't, I mean, the, 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 the point about sort of natural death is interesting and it certainly has resonance with some, uh, with some pagan traditions, certainly. Uh, you know, you can see some of that in, uh, in ancient Rome, for instance, uh, the the famous passage in the Aeneid jumps to mind where Dido is when Dido kills herself, um, but she kills herself before her time. And there's this lock of hair that has to be cut uh, in order for her soul to to be able to descend to the underworld because she's dying before her time. And Juno in mercy, the goddess Juno in mercy, sends her her messenger down to to, to clip the lock of hair so that. Uh, her spirit can descend. So there we can see like someone who's dying under unnatural circumstances is in a different situation um, from someone who doesn't. So there's certainly precedent for that kind of thing, but I don't think, I mean, I can't think of any examples where we see anything like that exactly operating. Um, Though, I mean, I mean, it could be sort of behind the scenes, but I don't think it's ever really pointed to. Um, So I think, uh, I think that that's an interesting it's an interesting subject, but I'm not sure that I'm not sure there's an answer to it. Um, uh, Dusty just asked a very simple question. Uh, the halls of Mandos is purgatory. I basically, yeah. One thing to keep in mind. Um, and, uh, I want to emphasize this when we remember, when we're talking about this, when we're talking about the whole Silmarillion, like a context for our whole discussion for this entire book is the fictional frame of this text is that the Silmarillion is written down by elves um, and it records things that they've learned from the Valar in Valinor, as well as things that they've witnessed themselves um, in Valinor and in Middle-earth, which means um, the whole thing is told from an elvish point of view, which means we don't get much about like purgatory, for instance, because that's about what happens to the souls of men. Um, there is uh, there is a reference to men having um, having halls apart in Mandos. It kind of sounds like purgatory might be it might be you know one of Mandos's gigs, but um, but we're not really told told much about that. Why not? Because because uh, elves don't know about it they don't go there and so and this is and there's there's no there does not seem to be any human contribution to this book uh even the stories that are about humans are still stories as they're recorded and retold by the elves so um 
And there will be a couple moments as we go through the stories uh, where I think that that becomes relevant and becomes really interesting to keep in mind. But it's um, but but here I think there you know so that we 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 are never going to be told anything in detail about what happens to men after they die because the elves don't know. So I, that that I think is that's the most important answer uh to the to to the question about purgatory but i think nevertheless um th- there are passages which certainly sound purgatory like uh there um uh, let's see mm-hmm. okay let's see i think dave let's see you wanted to add something about mandos um uh yeah um well, we were discussing, we were speculating um, uh, with regards to the, the phrase about him knowing all things that shall be except those things that lie still in the freedom of Illuvatar. Uh, what exactly are those things that, that lie in the, um, in the freedom of Illuvatar? I mean, they're, they're sort of, I think the, the, the kind of straightforward, simple answer is, well, the stuff with men. Because there's, there's a lot later in the Silmarillion that hints that men are sort of, sort of this special, unique status. But... Um, but there's also things at times that sort of hint at the fact that a lot of just generally events or people or things that, that concern all the children of Illuvatar seem to be, at least parts of it are beyond the purview of the, of the Valar. Um, they didn't know, for example, the when and where of when um, the elves would first show up. Also, uh, uh, I think Aranda is a good example later, too. That they, they knew sort of, they had some expectations about that, but again, they didn't know all the details. So I think that's very interesting. I, I think Mandos' sort of place in knowing what shall be, except, you know, some very, very important things, is, is it's, um, it sort of plays to the tension that, that exists throughout the Silmarillion between um, uh, the fact that, that with the you know the the way the music plays out in the Ainulindale suggests a certain amount of sort of foreknowledge of of the future both with Iluvatar and then also with the Valar, but you know he's pretty emphatic that there's freedom of choice and free will also, and so there's a lot of tension between determinism and free will, and and I wonder if that plays into um, Mandos's role as the the, the doomsayer and foreseer. Yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, there's, there's a lot there I'd want to respond to. I mean, I think it's, we can see the business about the freedom and, and what you remind us of very appropriately of the, the, the limitations of what the Valar can foresee. Um, uh, and remember, and as you, you talked about associating that with men, um, remember we're told that the vision was taken away before the fulfillment of the dominion of men. Um, so there's a whole stretch of the future, um, i.e. what is for us the present, uh, which was hidden from the Valar. Um, so I think that the, you know, it's important to remember that we, we, we can see Iluvatar putting a restriction. You know, I was talking about the freedom that he gives them and the power that he gives them and the authority and that he really lets them subcreate on their own, use their creativity. Um, it still makes the picture that he wants made, but it's also really their picture. Yes, up to a point. He, he does put limits and say, um, I'm not going to show you the whole thing. I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to give you the whole picture. There are some things that I'm just going to do. 
Um, and the children of Iluvatar are, of course, the primary thing. They're called the children of Iluvatar because he doesn't, um, they don't have any contribution to them. Um, elves and men come sort of directly out of the thought of Iluvatar. And that's why uh, the non-Melkor Ainur really loved the children of Iluvatar so much, because they were other than themselves. They didn't come from them. They, they came straight from Iluvatar. And so therefore, in that sense, the children of Iluvatar are unlike any other parts of creation, more like siblings to the Ainur than creatures, you know, than sort of products. But anyway, um, so I think the freedom and this then would get to the limitation on, on, on Mando's. I'm sort of, okay, there was uh, so many different things, Dave, that I would want to respond to in what you said that I feel like I'm losing my thread, but, um, but but yeah, I mean, I think that that we can see those those limitations that he places upon them, which is, I think, an interesting kind of reminder and contextualization, lest we forget, lest we um, lose sight of the fact that really, still at the end of the day, they um, they the Ainur are still just um, working out Iluvatar's. Uh, ideas. They are still playing parts in this drama that Iluvatar is primarily orchestrating. Um, so I think that that's a really um, that's a really cool thing uh, to keep in mind. Well, we are starting to approach the two hour mark, so we should probably uh, we should probably call it a night. I think here pretty soon. Any final um, any final uh, uh, <laughs> Dave wants a free for all. Um, any any final um, uh, thoughts, uh, topics, issues that you want to make sure we hit on before we leave? Uh, Arome, yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Okay. Arome. Let's see. Uh, Joe, the question about uh, dead elves and Mondos. I'm going to save that till we actually see our first dead elf um, because uh, I think th that will make more sense when we actually meet dead elves. Um, so, uh, okay. All right. Let's see. Arome and Tolkas, two of the, the prominent valor that we haven't touched on. Um, Arome is, is, uh, uh, is, well, Arome is really cool. I really love the fact he's contrasted with Tolkas. Like, but those two are the most, uh, militarily formidable of the Valar. I mean, you know, they're the two butt kickers and, uh, but they're totally different in their butt kicking style. Uh, you know, Arome, uh, is the most wrathful of the Valar. Tolkas is just having a heck of a time, uh, even when he's fighting. Um, you know, he's, um, that's, that's, uh, Tolkas is just hilarious. Um, and I love the, I love the, the, the sort of the delicacy with which Tolkien suggests that, uh, Tolkas is not very smart. Um, he is of no avail as a counselor, we're told. Um, but, uh, but anyway, that's that's the so that's that's a that's very that's very polite. Um, yes, this this 
this creation of this character, Tolkas, who is both the strongest and the mightiest and the most formidable warrior, um, but who also just is 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 the laughing god as well. He, you know, he's the one. You know, he's like the opposite um, of Nienna, right? Uh, though I think that's a marriage that wouldn't work out uh, between Tolkas and Nienna. They may be complementary uh, in some ways, but <laughs> but but they just that's that's uh, no. No, I don't think so. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, Mike had a Mike had a good question, a, a good specific question in the description of Sauron. Um, the question. Let's see, Mike. You can tell me if I'm getting this right. Um, in his beginning, this is the top of page thirty-two. In his beginning, he we're talking about Sauron here. In his beginning, he was of the Maiar of Aule, and he remained mighty in the lore of that people. And Mike's question was, what people are we talking about? Um, Aule's people is what we're talking about. Um, it's pretty clear that of the Maiar, you know, there are, there are Maiar all over the place. I mean, there are, there's, there's this unnumbered, large but large number of Maiar running around. Most of them don't get names. We don't see most of them actually doing anything by themselves. But we know that there are a lot of them. And... They seem to have, um, they seem to have affiliations. Basically, um, we will learn, for instance, Melian when we meet Melian. Um, and uh, that's it. This session of the seminar did, in fact, end in the middle of a sentence. See, what happened was, right at that moment, my brand new laptop decided to crash. It went into that very eerie and immensely ominous descending iron curtain of death thing that Macs do on very special occasions, and I had to reboot my whole computer. By the time I resuscitated my machine and got back to our online seminar room, many of the participants had very sensibly checked out. Let me now at least finish the sentence I had started. Melian is one of the people of Lorien. In session number three, we'll start off by coming back to some of the loose ends left by the quite abrupt ending of this session, so stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.